My guest, Marlon James, has published four novels, John Crow's Devil, The Book of Night Women, A Brief History of Seven Killings, winner of the 2015 Man Booker Prize, and Black Leopard, Red Wolf. Now living in Minneapolis, James teaches literature in uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis. The new novel is a fantasy filled with mystical, magical, shape-shifting characters. It's the first entry in his Dark Star trilogy, promising three perspectives on a single epic set in ancient Africa. It's also a huge bestseller that has earned rave reviews, and this one blew my mind, and I want to get your reaction (laughs) to it. Neil Gaiman called it a fantasy world as well-realized as anything that Tolkien made. Does that blow your mind a little bit? It was overwhelming. I, You know, because Tolkien stands so tall... I just realized my Freud and Sip almost called him Coltrane. <laughs> <laughs> Another guy that stands very tall yeah, over his field. That, that, that Tolkien stands tall over uh, all fantasy since, but even some of the fantasy before. Mm-hmm. And as the sort of standard as to how to not just write the fantastical, but how to have, have the fantastical talk about really, really small private things like like um, human nature mm-hmm. and and um, the nature of, of evil and when people who are insignificant have an effect on really, really large things bigger than them. Um, so it is kind of staggering and humbling and and I do sometimes wonder, who the hell are they talking about? <laughs> do you pay attention to reviews? Man, I'd love to lie and say no, <laughs> but actually, you know, I do. I, I do. I say yes and no. I do to a certain point. After a certain point, I do think it becomes very unhealthy right. um, to to read reviews. So I read a good portion of the good. I read a good portion of the bad, the negative, and then I just stop. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's probably wise. You know, yeah. otherwise you start overthinking and get in your head and and start, I guess, imposing other people's. I didn't, ideas of what you should be doing on your own work. Absolutely, you do. Then start to write by committee, mm-hmm. even yeah. when you don't realize when you don't realize that you're doing it. And I think that to me is ultimately dangerous. That's something that good criticism can cause as much damage as bad. Mm-hmm. Now. A Brief History of Seven Killings, The Book of Night Women, are historical fiction. This is a much different kind of book. It's mm-hmm. a it's a fantasy novel. Uh, the beginning of a trilogy, which I can only imagine is a, a, just a massive undertaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's lots of story shards and threads that all have to tie up over the next couple of books. Uh, why the change? Why the change? It doesn't feel like a jump to me, and there are a few reasons why. One being that there are always... Um, fantastical and magical elements in all my books. Um, Brief History of Seven Killings, maybe the closest I've come to a so-called realistic novel, but one of the main narrators is a ghost. Yeah. Um, so there's always there's always that, because I think growing up in the Caribbean, um, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez said it, that the reality is sometimes crazier than the wildest fiction. Um, so there is that. But there's also my background, how I grew up and the stuff I read. I always read, um, you know, I read, I've always been reading comics in particular. And my primary source of fantasy and mythology were comics, were encyclopedias on Greek myth and Norse myth and, and, and so on. But I've always been around them and I've always been fascinated by them. I've always tried to draw comics and fail miserably at it. <laughs> um, but that type of world was never away from me. Even when I was writing, you know, you know, my favorite TV show is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, you know, I, I, I remember um, not just watching sci-fi films, but even reading the novelizations of sci-fi yeah, yeah, films. Yeah. Uh, so that, to me, that those worlds were never 
so far from me, even regardless of what I was writing. So it didn't feel, it almost felt like a homecoming for me than um, a sort of a change of direction. And you say that you've always been drawn to monsters and witches, Mm -hmm. and you've sort of answered it here, but tell me, can you expand on why? Um... I think I think that there is something about that world that always haunted me and always thrilled me and also scared me. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember for years, and I do mean years, I was so terrified by the Wicked Queen in Snow White. I had to, I, I couldn't I couldn't close the door of the bathroom when I was taking a shower. <laughs> People must have think I was a young exhibitionist. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't realize no because I'm so terrified of the Wicked, way beyond the age where I should be. Yeah. Because I'm sure even when I was 10 or so, I'm still terrified of, of this Wicked Queen. Um, I just always believed in it. I think also being a kind of a occasionally, more often than not, depressed kid in the suburbs, you know, I remember wanting nothing more than having superpowers, right. more than just flying away from here. It, or yeah, and so just on. sort of expanding past the kind of dull yeah. place that you lived. And you're a novelist. Mm-hmm. You live... And die, I suppose, over your imagination. So before mm. you were putting words together, I guess maybe your imagination was already it creating was. those stories and fantasies in your head. Yeah, I would lie in bed and, and spend hours just daydreaming, just living in a different kind of world. I don't think that's all that I don't think that was altogether necessarily a healthy thing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was something I did an awful lot. I spent quite a bit imagining other worlds. The new novel, and I'm speaking with Marlon James, the novel is called Black Leopard, Red Wolf. We're talking about world building here. Right. So you've, you've created worlds in your head. So was this book trickier because you were completely inventing the world mm-hmm. that it exists in? Novelists do that. Yeah. But this is a fantasy world. This yeah. is a world that is beyond the scope of a normal novel. Yeah, it is absolutely trickier. It's trickier. It's so much more precarious. There's so many ways in which you could fall into traps. Mm-hmm. There are so many points of danger, and I'm not even talking about the monsters. Because um, the first trick of world building is to not make it seem as if you're doing it. Right, right. Um, it's fantasy to us. It's real to the characters. Uh, so I can't have it where even my characters are moving through the world like tourists. Right. But at the same time, it's not like I'm writing about New York City or Kingston, Jamaica. I, I, there is world building that has to happen. So that's the first struggle. How do you build this complete world and then make it seem as if you didn't? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that, that was a constant, up to the last minute, I think, before it went to the press, that was still something that was a matter of writing and rewriting and editing and chopping. Um, how do you talk about a giant fish being a raft? But they don't like to go, oh, look, it's a giant fish. (laughs) Your characters have to be beyond it. So the characters had to have a comfort with the newness that I couldn't have. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's one thing. I also didn't want to get into this kind of exoticizing Africa. Um, I was was writing, uh, it's still a fantasy world. It's, and I, you know, it's, it's, it's a, calling it Africa is is about as real as calling Middle Earth, Earth. Mm -hmm. You know, or calling Tatooine Sahara. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but I knew. But what I what I knew what what I realized, and it took me. It's some point in the writing I realized it's not necessarily that I'm trying to write a mythical Africa so much as a world in which Africa is the only context in which it could exist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just as so how in 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 you know in in um, Tolkien. 
um, you know, Scandinavian country and, and Celtic country is the only context in which it could exist, even though it's neither of those. And I think that realizing that helped, it certainly helped me more in, in the world building. But it's still, I mean, I, I researched this book for a good two years before I wrote a word. And what form does that research take? It takes everything. For one, it means reading a lot of very racist and colonialist and imperialist and orientalist books in Africa, right. which are mostly read for laughs. Um, <laughs> you know, it means, but it also means going out finding what all these African nations have been saying about themselves and the more recent work. So it means reading a lot of stuff that's still in academic language. Thank God I'm an academic, so I can understand it. Um, it means um, going to the back of books and looking at their bibliographies and reading what they read. Right. Because there's some, even some fantastic books that are still one person's perspective, which I totally respect, but I want to see the source material. I might come to a different conclusion. Mm -hmm. It means tracking down oral epics and seeing if anybody translated them. It means trying your hand at learning and failing to learn quite a few African languages, um, none of which I've learned to speak that well. Um, most of the languages I, I, I studied, like Wolof, I actually more, studied more the linguistics of it than the vocabulary. How do they? How does a sentence come together? Because right. um, I knew it would affect. Uh, I knew that this this novel that one I'm writing English which is already a compromise, but how can I trick it? You know, how can I take the language and take it into territory it didn't intend to go? Um, so that meant studying the grammar and structure systems and the cultural beliefs behind um, quite a few languages. But yeah, it's, but it also meant being, in a way, being paralyzed by all this research because it's so overwhelming. There is so much. And the funny thing is, it's not even that I scanned all of Africa. I pretty much started below Ethiopia, Upper Kenya, yeah. and, and that was enough to fill a 600-page book. And, uh, you know, but being so overwhelmed that, and, and by all the dilemmas of, well, how do I represent this? How do I have such and such? How do I not become a black guy culturally appropriating Africa? Um, you know, how, how, do, how does a novel happen, a fantasy novel happen, or, an or a speculative fiction novel happens that still has to deal with the fact that more often than not, when we think of speculative fiction, we think of European. Mm -hmm. And we think of people using a lot of European mythology, European history, and inverting that and, and moving beyond that and beyond all that language. Tell me uh, a little bit then about the genesis mm -hmm. for the Dark Star trilogy, because as I said, you know, these are, th this will end up being 1,800 pages long, which <laughs> is kind of a paralyzing thought for some writers. I, I, it was until I figured out what the trilogy was going to be. So you know where it ends already? Yeah. Um, the funny thing is, it's already ended. Mm. It, it's it's um, it's just what I, I I I can talk about when exactly I figured it out, but at some point I realized that this wasn't going to be a part one, part two, part three um, trilogy. Um, anybody who reads the first one knew I went from beginning to end. Yeah. There's really nothing more. He's right. The child is dead. There's nothing more to know, <laughs> as as he says. But the, each each novel is a different character's perspective on the same event. Right. So it sort of moves like a Rashomon kind of like style. a Rashomon, which is a huge influence for me. In fact, the second to last time I was in in Toronto, it was to give a talk on Rashomon. Actually. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the, the the different perspectives on the same thing, sort of like a kind of like Alexandra Quartet yeah. or Jane Gardam's Old Filth Old Filth trilogy, 
Um, because they, it, it fascinated me, the idea that two different people could come up with two completely different stories. It's like when two people give an in-depth deposition of seeing the same thing as a totally a totally different thing. and But that also ties into a lot of African folk storytelling where you know from the get-go that the trickster is telling the story. You also know that you may hear the same story five days in a row, but it's a different person in the room, a different person or a different character yeah. telling you their version. And you, know, and you realize that these are five different stories, even though they're talking about the same event. It also does two things. It, it, it throws the whole idea of truth up in the air. Um, what exactly is that? Mm-hmm. And it also leaves a reader with something to do. Like one of the things I've warned readers is that I'm not telling them who to believe. Um, there are three people talking about the same event with three very, very different versions of it. And so any of them could be the actual truth or none of them. Or none of them. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's like, I don't tell it to believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, if, if, they, if, 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 if that becomes important as to who is telling the truth, then the reader is going to have some detective work to do. And I wrote a book, uh, a, a journalism book, uh, a number of years ago about a movie called The Devils, and I had to track down everyone. Well, Ken Russell film. Ken it. Russell. So you should know one of my longest-running things I do is every month or so I harass Criterion Collection. Oh, yes. It's like, when are you going to bring out The Devils? Oh, well, I wrote an entire book about The Devils, mm. and I, I tracked down all the actors, mm-hmm. most of whom were old and don't have agents anymore and yeah. you know, all that stuff, to find them all. And uh, one guy in particular, Murray Melvin, told me a story that contradicted everything that everyone else had told me about <laughs> something that had happened on set. Mm-hmm. It was a small detail, but it was a, a detail that I mm-hmm. really wanted. And I said, well, actually, your co-star say, and he goes, who's to say that my memory is wrong? Mm-hmm. And I was like, absolutely. You know, so I ended up putting both versions in the book because yeah. I couldn't tell which was mm-hmm. accurate and which wasn't. But it's the same thing with the previous book, the Bob Marley assassination attempt. I put all the versions in there, all yeah. the theories. Um, one, because I really don't know. And all of them are pretty valid. But I also think this whole idea of a final truth is so, it's so Calvinist. Mm-hmm. It's so, um, you know, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, Christian. But but don't you think, though, that politically and everything else in the world mm-hmm. right now, but let's talk politics because it's, mm-hmm. a, it's an easier metaphor, that it, it, it has become like sports. Right. We are now on one side or the other, and there is no nuance in every, the the Democrats or in here the 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 Liberal Party mm-hmm. or the the Republicans or the Tory Party here, the Conservative Party. Um, they they are right, and the, if you if you support one of those parties, you cannot look to the other mm-hmm. for any kind of correctness or or any kind of validity in their in their mm-hmm. statements. Yeah, I, I um, remember getting in an argument with a right wing person because I'm pretty left, and I said, you know what? Here are, I said, here I'm going to tell you six things that conservatives get right, <laughs> and I told him. Of course, I can't remember a lot of them yeah. now. And I said, no, you tell me six things that liberals get right, and he couldn't give me two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you're right. It's it's um. It's polarized. It's polarizing as poison the discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, you know, I mean, I live in the states and I've seen the flaws in both. 
um, you know, I like to remind people that um, the, the the biggest displacement and the biggest um, examples of how systematic racism are eroding communities of color are in liberal cities. Mm-hmm. So, so for all this talk about you being liberal, your gentrification is destroying communities of color. So it's 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 not what it's too easy to paint villains and saviors. I you know I find in in you know in both, and I also think it it's. It creates a it creates a weird kind of world. Like I teach, I am teaching now students who were born in the twenty first century. Mm-hmm. Here are some of the things they take for granted: that five thousand people in the world are all on their same side because that's their their Facebook friends list. Right. So when they come with a negative, not even negative, a different opinion, they genuinely can't process it, and they struggle. And I have to know now. I have to teach my students how to think, right? Because they grew up with five thousand Facebook friends who all see in the an way echo they chamber. do. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, and and it is on on both sides. <clears throat> um, my last class, there were two people who voted for Trump. And out of how many people are we talking? Out of sixteen. Yeah. But still, it was enough to make the class really uncomfortable. I mean, to their credit, I'm not I'm I'm not knocking these kids too hard. To their credit, they they uh, they went past it and dealt with it mm-hmm. and confronted it. And I that's why I have lots of hope for these these children. But at the same time. They grew up taking partisanship for granted, and that's weird. Yeah, especially coming from a country like Jamaica, where I thought, "Oh, I'm in America now. Yeah, everybody's that. Uh, nobody's partisan. Yeah. Um, it's 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 very third world. I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's interesting because you kind of split your time, I think, between Minnesota, mm. which I would generally feel would be more of Trump land and New mm. York City, which is mm. the opposite. The thing is, Minnesota is actually very, very liberal. Is it? It's so liberal that um, Trump is the first Republican in years to campaign there. Mm. Usually it's considered a lost cause. That's so liberal they are. But, but it's one of those places in America where the cities are liberal. Everywhere else are so right and right. So, sometimes to the point of far right. So it's, yeah, we we're, we we like to talk about you know in Minnesota in Minneapolis you'll see four church ladies going around knocking on your door, asking you to support gay marriage, but go right outside you're in Michelle Batman territory. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's how a lot of those places are. The 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 the, the liberal cities surrounded by not very liberal. Um, Suburban and post-suburban and rural areas. I found the book to be quite cinematic in its style and scope. And since I've just met you, mm. uh, Rashomon has come up. Yeah. The Devils have come up. Criterion <laughs> Collection. You're a film fan, I mm-hmm. take it. Yeah, I'm a huge film fan. In fact, sometimes I think I'm more influenced by film than by books. Mm. Um, the, one, because I, I absolutely love dialogue. Yeah. And I think, and and um, and dialogue carries a lot of my stories, and and I teach quite a bit about dialogue, but I also think film teach film constantly teaches me economy. So when I tell my students, for example, a sunset doesn't need your help, <laughs> uh, you know, if you're in, if, if you know, film can convey the poetry of the of the everyday without necessarily having somebody giving me a metaphor in some voiceover. Yeah, the glowing embers of light shone heavily over the horizon. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, you know, film film don't have time to waste with with with, with all of that. Yeah. Um, but I also think filmmaking. Um, taught me place and taught me how to set a scene. Right. Um, I for, I was overhearing. Um, I was watching it on screen. Hilary Mantel, who wrote Wolf Hall, was talking about how she storyboards a scene. 
Hmm. I was funny because I used to be a storyboard artist. And I used to be an illustrator. Yeah, so yeah. so um, that, but in, uh, that, and also the whole idea of, of putting things in a scene or a stage. Um, like a, a story must have what I call stage business. Um, where is everybody in the scene? How does me being right beside you change the dynamic of our conversation as opposed to if I was across the street? Right. And what does it say that I know your secrets or that I don't know your secrets? How do I talk about something? Um, all of that becomes, you know, very, very um, important. Um, you know, I'll watch things like Le Samurai, you know, or Rififi mm-hmm. and how to construct a scene, particularly with economy, with as, as little words as, you know, as I can. Um, and that, con- that is constantly there. I think also because film is of more of a mass media entertainment when I was growing up it was easier to run into films than to run into books right right so I love scenes in films that tell us everything we need to know about the characters with no dialogue and Mm -hmm. I always think of uh, near the end of Lost in Translation you know everything you need to know about the relationship between Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray when she's wearing that little pink wig Mm -hmm. and it's the end of a very long night and she just sort of gently puts her head on his shoulder Mm -hmm. and it's a beautiful tender little moment there's nothing sexual about Mm -hmm. it it is just friends who have been through something Mm -hmm. that may possibly have changed their lives Mm-hmm. And you see it through that simple motion. I think, in a lot of ways, the older a writer like William Faulkner, mm-hmm. I read his work, and I, all I can see is silent film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can tell it doesn't surprise that he eventually went to Hollywood. Yeah, um, it's not a recent thing. People being hugely inspired by cinema. I, I, yeah, I read his work. All that symbolism. That silent film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that's, that's somebody who watched and rewatched Sunrise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I can tell. And, and then sometimes I even go back to, to films like Sunrise, which makes my jaw drop. Um, because it just, it just there's, there's so much about detail and so much about the actuality of a scene that has its own poetry. And has its own levels and layers of meaning. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's objective correlative. You know, how can this object or this action tell us depth about this character before they even say something? Or before I intrude and talk about how, you know, the torrential rain pour mirrored his torrential emotions <laughs> in his heart. Raging tsunami of I know, a raging inside. tsunami of fiery emotions when he said, come now. <laughs> well, if you look at a film, a silent film like Greed, mm-hmm. which is hours long, Four hours long. The original cut, I think, was eight. Good Lord, was and, it Russian? Yeah, no, it's uh, American. <laughs> but but uh, it, every uh, moment of that movie, mm-hmm. no dialogue tells you what it's trying to portray mm-hmm. in a beautiful and fantastic way. The reason that not that many people have seen it is because it's so long, and the studios threw their hands up and walked away from it. But <laughs> uh, but it is a, it's a it's an amazing movie. If you can even see fragments of mm-hmm. it, uh, it's an incredible movie because those movies were were cast with an eye towards faces mm-hmm. and an eye towards detail and an mm-hmm. eye towards all that stuff. That sounds like all of Ozu Ozu mm-hmm. movies. Yeah. Um, I have fun. I can never differentiate between the silent ones and the talk- the talkies. Yeah. Uh, what is that recent one I saw? The one about the two boys going to school. Hmm. I can't remember. It's about two schoolboys. I can't remember. But it was one of his silent films. Yeah, yeah. And I, for a while, I was like, "Oh, this is a silent one," because <laughs> it's because like, it's also it's 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 so much of 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 um, 
so much storytelling, so much narration happens in scene building. And that's something I always try to remember when I'm writing. And and it plays on your imagination. You're, mm-hmm. you're filling in whatever gaps might have been left by the dialogue mm-hmm. that isn't there inside your head. Yeah. yeah. I'm also a big believer in sound and smell. Yeah. Um, I want people to smell my book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not the smell of ink. Yeah. And, and I want people to, I want volume. I want people to know which parts are shouted, which parts are screamed, which parts are whispered, which parts you're overhearing you're not supposed to know. Right. Um, and I'm a big, you know, believer in that. I um, I spoke to somebody from the Royal Society for the Blind a few years ago. He was, he was actually giving me a lot of, um, they gave me a special commendation for brief history. And one of the things they appreciated was how much it didn't depend on just sight right. and visuals. And I always remember that. And I remember that when I write. I'm, and I'll say to people, what does it sound like? You know, I teach a 9-11 class. I go, what do you think 9-11 smelled like? Um, and it's because I'm a writer. I have eyes. Of course, I'm going to overdo the visual gags. Um, but I want to know. I want to know what, yeah, I want to know what loneliness smells like. Do you think that's why when you write, you like to have music playing, you like to have a window open, you like to have mm. some kind of sensory action around you while you write. Lots of writers have told me, I need perfect silence. and God, I need, so You amazing. like to throw on Bitches Brew. Yeah. Side three, I understand. Is yes. The Spanish key. Yeah. Is, is the one you particularly enjoy. But it, mm. it, it stimulates you. And maybe that's where that. Yeah. Because I write, I write with, I need momentum. Yeah. I need momentum and I need rhythm and I need energy. And I think I'm, maybe I'm a vampire. I think I just suck it from, <laughs> from wherever. I also am really inspired by other, how other artists make art. Mm-hmm. I can, I'm surrounded by readers and books every day. I, 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 get, I, can, you know, I, get, I get as much energy to write just staring at Damozel Davignon. Yeah. You know, or or um, something from Kara Walker, um, as I do from reading another book. Mm-hmm. I like other art. Um, but music, again, you know, I grew up in a noisy house. There's always music. There's always shouting. There's always, <laughs> nobody's going to keep quiet so I can write that term paper. <laughs> so you figure it out. Yeah. And, and, but it's, it's the damage was done. <laughs> I, um, like something like Spanish key, I actually start listening to as I'm riding my bike to my office. So by the time I sit down, I'm already deep into it. And I, and writing to me feels like I'm just catching up. Mm-hmm. To something that a story that's already going on, and that's why I, 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 that's how stories always feel to me. Like it's been going, it's, it's going to go on without me anyway. Right. And I'm just catching up, and I put on my reporter journalist cap and start to write a news report about Imagine People. I once had an author in here, Douglas Copeland, who's a, a well-known Canadian author, and mm-hmm. he told me that when he's a well-known writing, author, period. You know, he is. Yeah. <laughs> and and. Uh, he told me that when he writes dialogue, it, it, he it's almost as if the characters are like the you know the on his shoulders, like the good angel mm-hmm. and the devil or whatever, whispering the dialogue in his ears. I agree with that. For me, I wish they'd whisper. They're so loud in mine. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like I'm, I'm eavesdropping. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember back when way younger when I was writing dialogue, I actually used to eavesdrop. Yeah. I just. My neighbors have a fight. I'd go over and 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 listen. I remember once one of my neighbors, and he says something like, "You know what? I'm gonna take a trip to Planet Me." And I groaned so loud. I'm like, "Really? That's what you're gonna say?" Then they went, "I think somebody's listening to us." But that's that's an amazing line, though. No, it's a horrible up. line. 
I could never get away with that. But it, it will tell you everything you need to know about that character. Yeah, I didn't want to be friends with that guy. To write it for me, even more so than being interested in dialogue, you have to be interested in people. Which is, which is why I don't believe in this myth of the reclusive author. Right? You know, People think Tom Pynchon is a recluse. I hear everybody on the street knows who Tom Pynchon is. We were talking about movies, and there was mm-hmm. a film about writing that really grabbed me. And it's from a couple of years ago, Jim Jarmusch film called Patterson. Adam mm-hmm. Driver plays a bus driver in Patterson, New Jersey, who I think is also named Patterson. His last name mm-hmm. is Patterson. And he writes poetry, but he only writes it for himself. And one day something terrible happens and his book gets eaten and it's by his dog and it disappears and he is mm-hmm. despondent. He's There's no backup. There's not on a computer anywhere. He's sitting on a park bench a man comes down and sits next to him and they start to talk. He's a poet as well. They mm-hmm. start talking about that. And the guy says, I've got a, a present for you. And he pulls out a book and gives it to him. And he opens it up and there's nothing in it. It's all blank pages. And he's disappointed. Patterson is disappointed. Mm-hmm. And the author says, don't be disappointed because every page in this book is a possibility for you. Mm-hmm. And I love that story. That's I fantastic. love that story because that line kind of changed the way that I think about writing, because I think occasionally I used to dread a lot of what I do mm-hmm. is on deadline. Yeah. I'm going to bang out an article. I get, and so sometimes mm-hmm. you, you approach it a little differently. It's like, man, this is just, I got to bang this out and I have to do it now. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than looking at this blank page and saying, I could do anything I want on this. Mm-hmm. And that to me changed the way I think about writing. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, so I think I'm 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 kind of somewhere in between that, where I, I do think a blank page is is just loaded with possibility, mm-hmm. and it's the hardest. It's not the hardest thing, but it's the thing I expect all the time when I'm teaching, um, having my students get over the fear of the blank page. Yeah. Um, if if for no other reason that the first thing you write is really the first thing anybody's going to read. That's right. Um, and so on. But at the same time, I have a pretty strict work ethic with writing. And, and yeah, is there a, I interviewed uh, Elmore Leonard, who I know is, mm-hmm. uh, you're a fan of, and, and Elmore Leonard told me that, you know, he would start at, I think it was 6 a.m., right at noon. And even if he was in the middle of a sentence, he would stop at noon, mm. have his sandwich, and go back at one o'clock. And he kind of treated it like office hours. I'm the same way. Okay. I, I get into my office around like 11 ish. 10, 11, and I write till 6. And, yeah, I'll, usually I'll finish the sentence. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not finishing the paragraph. Right. Um, I'm stop. I stop. And, and knowing when to stop to me is also very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes when I come at the next day, I forget where, where that thought was going. So what? I have a new thought now. Yeah. Um, and I've got, I've come to terms with losing losing story or losing plot lines or so on. It's like, well, you know, maybe it wasn't meant to be. But I'm a, yeah, because you know, when I write, I sit down and I go to work. I love when people say things that they write when they're inspired. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I thought if you only write when you're inspired, you will never. You will never I, write it. I'm like, I haven't been inspired since the first George Bush administration. That's lovely. I go, I get, I get to my office and I do the work. Um, one of my greatest creative writing teachers, Nancy McKinley, once said to me, she said to the whole class, said, um, if, you, if you set a routine, the muses will show up. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big believer in that. Whether it's the muses or creativity or whatever you want to call it, set a routine and the muses will start to respect you. Say, oh, you're serious now. Yeah. You're giving me the time I deserve. I uh, also think it's like a muscle. Mm-hmm. And and the more you flex that muscle, the stronger it gets. Yeah, but dancers don't need this lesson. 
Mm. Musicians don't need this right, lesson. Right. Even painters don't need this lesson. Writers need it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you and know, I wonder no, why that is. I think because we don't know, we, we haven't taught, in creative writing, we haven't taught the value of practice. Right. It's hard. Um, my students really resent it, for example, <laughs> because it means I want this and I want another draft and another draft. They go, we don't write enough because they want to write 15 stories. I'm like, no, we're going to do two stories and you're going to keep writing and rewriting and rewriting. It's practice. Yeah. And I think that's, it's hard though. It's hard teaching um, some, you know, somebody who's 19 and is just discovering themselves and just discovering writing that we're going to write only three papers, yeah. but it's 14 weeks. <laughs> So practice is hard. It's hard for them, I think. It's hard for writers to develop practice. Well, the art of writing really is in the rewriting. Mm-hmm. And and going over this, uh, I was reading, and I don't remember which book it was, but you, the, the book that we see now actually starts in the middle of what you originally wrote. Mm-hmm. And brief so history, you, yeah. yeah. Brief history. So you cut half a book. Or, oh, I've got more than that. Yeah? <laughs> I've, got, I've got entire books. <laughs> the... the well, we refer to actually the big, the the the, yeah, the book that began, the book that um, the first page that I ever wrote is now on page four fifty eight. Wow. Um, yeah, which means a lot of stuff got cut, yeah. <laughs> and it also meant four hundred and fifty seven pages had to be written or rewritten yeah. or, or written. Um, I because not I start with whatever is whatever image is most arresting for me. Mm-hmm. Knowing full well that may very not very well not be the beginning of the book, right. or it may very well not even appear in the book, and I think you have to come to terms with that. You have to come to terms with that. Yeah, you can write fifty pages to save one. Mm-hmm. It's a process. I wish I was a more efficient writer, but I'm not. <laughs> I am a very sloppy writer. Well, people always ask me, you know, what is your process, and I'm like, I, I, it's like the Nike ad. Just do it. Yeah, is, is is my process, and it's yeah. not about like having the right cup of tea on my mm. desk and the whatever. It's mm. about doing the work. My question usually, I, Jama- Jamaicans are notorious for answering questions with a question. <laughs> um, but when people ask us my process, my first question is: So, are we talking about process or habit? Right. Because you might think you have a process, but what you have is a habit. That's right. And I frequently you learn this the hard way. I love to say I'm smart enough, but I always fall into that trap of habit because different pieces, different books demand different processes. And the worst thing you can do is take book A process and apply it to book B. Because that's what happened with, with, with my previous novel. I tried to write it like the novel before, which is let's find the one magic voice that would tell the story. Yeah. And anybody read Brief you know there are 70, 60 free characters yeah, yeah. in it. So you can see how wrong that idea was. Um, I least remembered in time when I approached this book that that process can't work for this. It's each each book, each painting, each song demands its own process. Otherwise, you, you don't have a process. You have a formula. I'm speaking with Marlon James. The book is called Black Leopard, Red Wolf. How do you know when it's done then? That's so a good question because I you, don't. Yeah. <laughs> you take all those things, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 and there's so much uh, effort that goes into it. And then there's a moment where you have to let it go. I am. I'm getting better at that. Yeah. I used to have a horrible time letting go of books because I didn't have a life. <laughs> and I'd, I'd finish a book and look at friends and go, when did you have a kid? Yeah. Um, <laughs> So it was, you know, I think, you know, to have maybe a fuller life, maybe. It's less hard, but it's still hard. 
I um, this is how I know I'm done with a book when I've been writing for a few more weeks and I keep regurgitating, retelling, so on. I have to go. You know what? Stop. You. This book was done three weeks ago. Right. This sentence is not going to get any better, no Precisely. matter how many times yeah. I change the words around. Yeah. So it's it's always a hard way. It's always a kind of mental slap in the face. Um, but usually it's a good month after I've ended a book that I know I've ended it. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I rewrote, uh, the devil's book between its first and second pressing. <laughs> I, it, it was already out. So the people that bought it originally and the people that bought it you uh-huh. know, a month later have slightly different books. Yeah. So I should find a first edition on eBay. That's, <laughs> that's what you're right. saying. <laughs> that's right. I, you know, there's so many differences between the galley. And the final book, I had somebody come to the reading and they had the galley and they were reading along with me. I had to stop. I'm like, dude, you're not going to recognize a single thing. <laughs> wow. And, <laughs> <laughs> and this book, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, which is you can buy anywhere. It's in bookstores and Amazon.ca, all that kind of thing, everywhere. It's not hard to find. It's a giant bestseller by Marlon James. Uh, Michael B. Jordan has picked up the rights to the book. Mm-hmm. I like to say Killmonger bought the book. Killmonger bought, bought the, the book. book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, is this the first one that's been turned into a film? Or will be turned into a film? Will be, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, everybody's super excited. Um because, you know, I think I think there's just room for so much more stories. You know, I'm so excited that Nenedia Corafor's Who Fears Dead is coming to HBO. Yeah, yeah. And it's not a matter of, it's, 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 um, how do I put this? Cause I think on one hand, it is, it is super exciting that we're bringing these African and these black stories simply because they're African and they're black. But I hope people also realize that these are still universal stories. These are still universal themes. We don't have to shunt it over to the urban section. Right. Well, I I think the success of Black Panther showed to Hollywood in a Mm. very large and unequivocal way Mm -hmm. that that a movie that is uh, culturally specific can Mm. have a very wide appeal uh, with audiences. I mean, the thing's made a billion dollars, and that is not shunting it over to the urban section. No, and and Luke Cage's first season brought the internet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, You know, it's, it's... I think we, we're going to have to realize that our audience is a lot more sophisticated than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. And, and they're also a lot more hungry than we give them credit for. Um, I, I have to believe that because I write really, you know, <laughs> I write really convoluted, violent, <laughs> you know, nihilistic books. <laughs> and they clearly sell. Um, so I, I, I've all, but you see, I've always done that. I've always had faith in the reader. I've always, I've always had faith in the reader. Um, because I just, I just always did. I just, I just refuse to believe. And I continue to refuse to believe when people say there's no audience for such and such. I was like, you can't, it's, the world has changed, you know, um, at any given moment, 1 billion people have access to a TV show or a book. Mm -hmm. It's, it's. We can't make those sweeping things anymore, and we can't underestimate people's willingness to read stories that have nothing to do with their world, but but in a way they do, um, and I've just I've just always believed it. 